You're listening to the fourth episode of Season 2 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in Season 1, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God, despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression and words and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my young adult life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased follow-up concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 4, Epipotam. I live in Canada. French is a thing here. We're all required to take French in school, many of us from kindergarten up, and so I had it right up until I graduated high school. It wasn't that hard, just like English, but occasionally backwards. J'habite au Canada. Le français, c'est important ici. On est tout obligé d'apprendre le français à l'école. Il y en a parmi nous qui l'apprendront en maternelle. Moi, j'ai pris des leçons de français jusqu'à ce que je finisse ma secondaire. Ce n'était pas difficile. Le français est comme l'anglais, juste à l'envers. Well, actually, the question of language can be quite political in Canada. The French and the British intermarried with, traded with, and displaced the indigenous peoples of this area and each other, meaning we have people with the usual English, Scottish, Irish, or Welsh heritage, people with origins in France, and a whole lot of people with ancestry from a combination of England, France, and indigenous bands as well. It's often been said that the Canada-U.S. border, a couple of hours to the south, is a border that draws the difference between people who said, well, British rule isn't perfect, but we're not going to cause a fuss about it or anything. And people who said, give us liberty or give us death. Don't tread on me. I got guns. Closer to here even than America is the border to the east into Quebec, a province where French is the legally protected language. The law is that signs have to be in French there, otherwise French would quickly die out and be replaced by nothing but signs reading Starbucks, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Staples, and McDonald's. New Brunswick is the only province that is legally bilingual in French and English, though Ottawa, the capital of Canada, is 40 minutes from here, and most business is conducted in both languages there. But French is no big deal for me. My grandmother survived the Blitz in London during the Battle of Britain in the Second World War, had children with a Canadian soldier of Scottish descent, and moved them, including my mother, to Montreal, Canada, the city in the province of Quebec in which English is perhaps spoken more than any other. My Canadian grandfather had abandoned them before they came over the ocean, and they never reconnected again. My mother went to school, pulled up from poverty by being fostered in an affluent Plymouth Brethren family when her mother was institutionalized. There, in Montreal, Quebec, she became an elementary school French teacher, teaching English children in an English school in Quebec how to speak basic French. She'd lost her British accent as a child at school in Canada, but her French accent was strictly textbook rather than being from street. My grandmother, on my dad's side, was French-Canadian, marrying an Anglophone Quebecer of British, Irish, and Scottish stock. Moore is not really an Irish name originally, though there have been Moors living in Ireland for so long, most people think it is. The British won the Battle of the Plains of Abraham a few hours from here, subjugating the French, and have been apologizing ever since. Terribly sorry, old chaps. While the French have been threatening to leave Canada in a peak ever since from time to time. Each time... They have decided, well, I suppose we might stay for a little bit longer. When I was a child, French terrorists were setting bombs and kidnapping politicians in Ottawa, and Trudeau the Elder, Francophone himself, 
the much more hard-ass salty father of our current panty-waist prime minister, unconcerned with everyone liking him, basically called in the troops, declared a Canadian version of martial law, and sorted the thing out. When asked how far he was willing to go, he simply said, Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any family. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. The spirit of Europe conquering Napoleon is alive and well in some francophones. Americans tend to think the French are cowards or militarily inept, given what Hitler did to them in the Second World War, mostly by virtue of Hitler living right next door and being able to drive tanks straight on into Paris to take selfies in triumph under L'Arc de Triomphe with the Eiffel Tower over his right shoulder. But this is as silly as eating freedom fries under the Statue of Liberty France gave America as a gift, or in Louisiana, an entire state named after the French King Louis XVI to thank him for giving them the ships required to kick the Brits out of America. Baton Rouge sounds kind of chic, unless you know that it simply means red stick. Just like je ne sais quoi means I don't know what. No, I I know what it means. It means I don't know what. The fact is, if I were speaking the kind of English we had in England before we were conquered by the Norman French, and consequently English became about 40% French fried, you wouldn't understand a word I was saying. In Canada, French and English are yin and yang. But to this day, there are Francophone kids who proudly refuse to learn either Canadian English nor the kind of French spoken in Europe, And there are many Anglophone kids who stubbornly, proudly even clasp their total ignorance of French vocabulary to their xenophobic little chests. Obviously, to me, it was a point of pride to be able to learn French. My British mother had been a French teacher after all, though there had been absolutely no French learned or spoken in my paternal grandmother's house, despite her being named Doris Labelle and having a fairly thick French accent and a habit of saying things like, oh, I have to take a shower for to wash my hairs. Canadian people of British heritage can try to paint French Canadians as arrogant, despite speaking English with that outrageous accent, or rude, dirty, and low class, clearly not having a leg to stand on if comparing the British to the French in terms of food, wine, romance, dancing, art, and a thousand other things. My French Canadian grandmother casually baked excellent homemade bread and cakes and pies and blackened molasses-soaked baked beans with bacon and ham, while my British grandmother followed that good old World War II culinary practice of mainly filling the air in our house with the scent of cabbage she'd boiled the hell out of along with any nutritional value it used to possess. But French always seemed a bit amusing to us in Ontario. For example, hearing people rapping in French made us snicker. Le vent souffle en Arizona Un état d'Amérique dans lequel Arizona Cowboy dang, du bang bang, du flingue De l'arme, du cheval et de quoi faire la bringue Poursuivi par Smith et Wesson Colt, Deringer, Winchester et Remington Il erre dans les plaines, fiers, solitaires Son cheval et son partenaire And there were things in school, like the fact that the French word for seal, the animal, is properly pronounced just like our F word in English. My grade 11 French teacher leaned right into that by teaching us a French tongue twister, les petits phoques suffoquent sur les flocons de glace, which means the little seals suffocate under the ice flows. Les petits phoques suffoquent sur les flocons de glace. We loved Mrs. Ferguson. She truly didn't give a seal about convention. She even mentioned Bleu Nuit one time in class, because she knew 
that we knew and was letting us know that she knew that we knew that the French Channel was showing movies with very brief scenes of nudity in them Saturday nights. Au cours d'une expédition en Afrique, une jeune femme rencontre le seigneur de la jeune. Voici Beau Derrick et Richard Harris dans le film d'aventure Tarzan, l'homme singe. Avertissement. Ce film renferme des scènes de nudité. And Monty Python, Cheech and Chong, and Police Academy, dubbed into French with different punchlines. Eh ben, j'espère que t'es pas occupé pendant un mois. Oh merde, alors je vais crever. Cette saloperie va me faire crever. Mais non, mec, ce LSD, il est très Mais j'en avais jamais pris, mec, ça me fait horreur. J'ai complètement flippé, mec, j'ai vu des gars comme ça près de chez moi et qui avaient pris trop d'acide. Mais qu'il avait des dépressifs. Mais je veux pas crever, Amolis-toi. Oui. Allons-y. Quoi Fais comme moi. The language issue provided an extra challenge for the Plymouth Brethren as well. Oh, we could hold an enormous Bible conference and successfully get everyone dressing and thinking and feeling and acting more or less the same, at least outwardly, for a while until the division. But if we included folks from the neighboring province of Quebec, they sure didn't talk the same as us. It was one thing to insist on using the King James translation of the Bible only, but another to remember that that's an English translation, and so if some brethren people are French, and some are, they need a different one, a French one. That was a head-scratcher, because Moses, Malachi, Jesus, and Paul hadn't spoken French. We could spend afternoons talking about whether Matthew 18 and 20 should say, where two or three gather, or where two or three are gathered, until French people were involved. Then what? We can insist that people pray with thee and thou and hadst and didst and wouldst. But what about if people were praying in some other language entirely? I mean, gracious, they didn't even sing the same words in hymns. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a rich like me. Became grâce incroyable comme le son du qui a sauvé misérable comme moi. That didn't rhyme, nor did it scan. You had to write it entirely into Grâce de Dieu, quelle douce voix Qui sauve un pécheur tel que moi J'étais égaré Elle m'a trouvé Et sorti de l'obscurité And that meant something slightly different, and it sounded totally different. It didn't trigger all the warm tribal familiarity, unity, and nostalgia stuff we needed triggered in our hearts. And we were uncomfortable, which is how important to us. These relatively superficial things like Bible translations and wordings of prayers and hymns, melodies, and kinds of clothing and hairstyles really were, to what we were only pretending, were deeper, more spiritual matters that needed us to champion them. One of our biggest Bible conferences was held at Thanksgiving in Montreal, Quebec each year, and was almost entirely in English. Before the division happened, you'd get people from Boston and Brooklyn and Buffalo and Winnipeg showing up. It seemed that the numbers in our Plymouth Brethren group peaked shortly before the division, and I remember that they sometimes had special wireless headsets you could take to sermons, listening to someone sitting in the back translating the sermon into French in real time. 
Michael Vetter and I sometimes use those. Him, because he was listening to complete gibberish, which amused him for part of an hour-long lecture about how evil this evil world really was in all of its evilness, and me because I would try to understand it to give my brain something to do. My brain was dying in that ecclesiastical environment. One guy went to the Montreal Bible Conference and said that all the preaching was last week's mashed potatoes reheated. True that. There was even a special French gospel meeting in a small room in the Montreal Bible Conference sometimes. One time, Michael's older brother Nathan and I went to it. Again, him purposefully, so he could sit in a meeting like he was expected to, but not understand a single word, and me to try to understand it. Nathan was doing this thing that conference, which he called put-pocketing. It was like pickpocketing, only in reverse. He went around with a handful of pens and pocket change, seeing how many people could have a pen or coin stealthily planted in their purse or pockets without noticing a thing. Nathan worked the crowd doing that the entire weekend. Nathan had a hobby, too, of breaking into buildings he was definitely not supposed to be in after dark and not getting caught nor stealing or wrecking anything. One evening when I was in the recording studio and Michael and some of the rest were up here visiting, they went off to amuse themselves in Ottawa. They sneaked into the then-under-construction American Embassy. It was just a construction site at that point. Well, Michael, who was at that point sporting overalls and a large flat-brimmed black felt hat and a ginger beard, got caught by a security guard. They asked him for his name, and he gave it, then where he was from, and he said Pennsylvania. They asked if he was Amish, so he said he was. I think he was doing an accent and everything. They asked for his driver's license or other photo ID, so he reminded them that he was Amish. No cars, no photos. They asked for his phone number, and he again reminded them that he was Amish, so no phone. So they told him not to do it again and sent him on his way. The brethren in Montreal had to make their minds up as to which side was the one true correct right one when we in Ottawa had our division, sure enough. Same with the brethren in Madrid, Bombay, and Berlin, in Accra, Cairo, and Lima. Which side of the big fight in Nepean, a suburb of Ottawa, Canada, was the one true one, the only one with God? What was Bournemouth, England's decision? Melbourne, Australia's? It all almost made us look and feel a bit silly, so we were told repeatedly how incredibly deadly serious it all truly was. Imagine Sunday morning spending an hour worshipping the Lord, and it turns out you were at the wrong street address. So much of the brethren was cultural. Most of the fighting was over keeping things Victorian. French people tended to do what they wanted more than we did, and they felt very free to have loud arguments, French people somehow just ended up dressing with more élan and panache, too, looking more suave and debonair than we did, even when they dressed quite conservatively. They just had this certain je ne sais quoi about them. Very chic. They were generally louder, more honest, more quick-tempered, brusque, and apt to laugh loudly and long. They also might have had relaxed attitudes to wine and maybe even smoking and dancing. They knew how to party, were more comfortable with their bodies, and might even be able to dance. And the Spanish people in America? Forget about it. They had affichon and not mere American excitement. It hurt my heart to see pictures of rooms full of African and Caribbean people all dressing and acting, talking and singing as much as possible like white Victorian Plymouth Brethren fundamentalist Christians from Europe and North America. They tried their level best to sing as flatly and slowly and emotionlessly as we did, but they couldn't help it. Whenever we got a tape of a Bible conference or hymn sing with Jamaicans or Haitians singing, they sounded so good it was sinful. The Japanese and German brethren were a bit better at singing as boringly and badly as we did. The point, as in the case of Henry Francis Light, the man who wrote Abide With Me, was to sound like one was failing fast and would pass away entirely by the end of the hymn, 
and then needed to be sung at his funeral, as Light soon did. We had to be serious so much of the time, especially about things that increasingly seemed pretty dumb. People who seemed increasingly odd, quaint, erratic, and eccentric, to put it extremely tactfully, demanded more and more dignity and respect. Well, in a fit of characteristic silliness back then, I wrote one of my silly songs. They often just came into my head, sometimes when I was sleeping, and if I didn't record some version of them right quick, I forgot them. In the early 2000s, I woke up with a very silly song in my head, recorded it immediately, emailed it to three Ottawa radio stations and had it playing on two of the three, as a local joke song, you understand, not a hit, in time for Bill to report to his morning shift at work and be surprised to hear it. <sighs> that mother Bill told anyone in earshot, on the radio already, before me. But it wasn't like people taking a serious song seriously. It was a one-off, throwaway novelty thing. But this episode's song wasn't that song either. It was one written entirely in nonsense fringe. To French people, there's probably nothing funny about singing a song that is simply a meaningless mishmash of words from your high school French vocab sheet. To Flight of the Concords, of course, it's probably funnier than it is to us Canadians. But decades earlier than that dickhead Brit McKenzie of Flight of the Concords did it, I had already done it. Michael Vetter said he thought it was funny, but he didn't exactly sing in French, so I was on my own as to making it. It needed French Smurfs, I thought. For the record, so to speak, Smurfs were in French to begin with before being translated into English, and were called something that always sounds to me like a small Belgian woman sneezing into a perfumed handkerchief. Stumpfs. The petit Stumpfs bleu. Hello Down There had promised that Peter the protagonist and his new leprechaun friend would enjoy writing and singing songs together. And Michael and I did that sometimes. In fact, he sang for me the first time I ever performed a song I'd written live, as I was far too nervous to sing it myself. We did it at a talent show for about 300 brethren young people in Michigan. The Striper song, honestly, was also sung by the two girls on that occasion. My song was a sappy, cheesily but sincerely worded song about loving God, my heavenly Father, to whom I would gladly, theoretically, surrender whatever life the Plymouth Brethren hadn't already got their mitts on. And Michael sang it slowly while I plunked quietly along on my electric guitar, not having an acoustic guitar yet. Michael has painted cover art for one of my books, too. But for this album, our collaboration is all represented in this one silly little song in French, Avec les Strumpfs. How you do Smurfs, if you have a 90s cassette 4-track machine, is you have to sing the Smurf parts to the rest of the song going at half speed. Sue's back. Back again. Shade is back. Tell a friend. Speed it back up to normal.
Et voila, Strumpfs. Besides people repeatedly telling me that I shouldn't ever play my own guitar or sing my own songs, I am also often told that I should only do the silly ones, because those are the songs people seem to take most seriously from me. Every time someone has said, now that's, that's a, a good, good song, song, it's been one of my ridiculous ones. Quand je suis 